Take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah uh, 25. Isaiah 25, this is a great chapter. I mean, they're all great chapters in the Bible, but there are some that are fun to listen to and some that maybe are less so. This is in the fun category. Hear God's word, Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You've made this city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on his mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do humbly ask, just as you have spoken in the reading of your word, would you now speak in its preaching? Give us the ears to listen. Give us faith, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. It's easy for us to kind of poke fun at the younger generations. I think that's probably what's supposed to happen uh, in a fallen world is that as you get older and kind of more cantankerous with the world, it's easier for you to kind of poke fun at those that are younger than you. But occasionally, I think it's really important when we acknowledge that uh, when somebody gets it right. Uh, One of the things I was reading, this is the last couple of months, is that there's increasingly a push amongst Gen Z. So you have, right, your baby boomers, uh, you've got your uh, uh, Gen X, you've got your millennials, and you've got your Gen Z. That's people born 2000 and after. Uh, You're increasingly beginning to see uh, your folks in Generation Z kind of pushing back 
against the constantly kind of pervasive, you know, intervening technological reality of their world. Now, whereas your baby boomers kind of fell in love with the iPhone and things like that, and Gen X has kind of just kind of swallowed that hole, uh, your Gen Z is, they're really beginning to kind of push back on that. And we're beginning to see, interestingly, a lot of that is with this very love-hate relationship towards their phones. Uh, hating it and trying to get away from it. You're beginning to see uh, companies moving back to making flip phones. Uh, In fact, actually now there's a number of companies that make phones that uh, don't have screens that you can even read the internet at all. Uh, And it's intriguing that, you know, some of the studies that are beginning to do in sociologists and work and things like that uh, are beginning to realize that Gen Z is beginning to figure something out. They're beginning to figure out that the internet is bad for you. Um, I know this is shocking, it's kind of mysterious news to most of us, but they're kind of intuitively beginning to figure out that the internet is bad for you, and it's specifically very bad for your mental health, and largely because the entire internet is a lie. All of it is a lie. Uh, it's a lie primarily, even not just facts, but it's a lie in sense of perspective, it's a lie in the, in the sense of percentages. It's my favorite kind of uh, one of the lies. Instagram, you know, this great social media platform that lets you get to see other people's lives. Except Instagram is one of the biggest marketing devices in the world. The second most famous soccer player in the world five years ago made more money from his Instagram account than he made playing soccer. And his soccer salary at the time was a million dollars a week after taxes. That is not a bad livelihood, is it? A million dollars a week after taxes, and Instagram was paying him more. Uh, Gen Z's beginning to figure out this is a lie, and part of what they're beginning to realize is they've kind of intuitively figured out that more or less everything on the internet is bad news. Everything is bad news. Now, your older generations remember we got to kind of measure when we got our bad news. You got up in the morning. Some of you, you you fixed breakfast, you got your orange juice and your eggs, you sat down and you got the newspaper so that you could enjoy your 30 minutes of misery. You would conclude it by going to the obituaries to see who you knew and then turn to the comics so you could end there. If you were slightly younger, maybe you didn't enjoy the newspaper in the mornings, but in the evenings, what you would enjoy is instead, you turn on the nightly news and you get, what, 30 minutes of local news and then 30 minutes of national news. But your bad news was confined to an hour tops. Uh, Things began to change in American culture, largely with Ted Turner and the arrival of CNN. CNN destroyed America uh, because it created uh, a need that we didn't know we had, which was for a 24-hour news cycle. We suddenly didn't know that we needed it, but now that we have access to it, we need news all the time, 24-7, all the time, 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 more news, more news, more news. And then the arrival of telephones where you can read the internet and laptops and tablets and all these sorts of things and now our watches, you can't get away from the bad news. And interestingly, Gen Z is the first generation to kind of figure out that this is really not good for people. This is really bad for our brains. Uh, In fact, it's intriguing to see some of the studies that are now coming out with the more you're on the internet, the more likely you are to have mental health problems uh, kind of across the board. Uh, And for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, that is like 3,000% more for women than it is for boys. I don't know why that is. That's not up for me to decide. The internet is a bad place, but it is particularly bad for women. Uh, It's intriguing, I think, for me that 
is we really, if you kind of honestly stop and look at the last, you know, 50 years in our nation, we're looking at the time really that should be celebrated pretty much kind of across the board. I mean, you think about it, it's immense affluence, affluence that has increased in our nation from top to bottom so that even low-income families now make more money than most of the world could even conceive of making. We've lived in a time in which, for many people, civil liberties have actually increased or been uh, codified in law as to be more free. We, We live in really a wonderful time. I mean, it really is staggeringly wonderful. I mean, to think about it, for some of us, we have relatives that live across the country, and we can either pick up and fly there with relative ease or drive there if they're not that far, or if we don't have the time or the money to do that, we can call them and actually see their face and talk to them face-to-face over our technology. It's amazing. And yet, we live in a world that's preoccupied with the bad news. I mean, you think about it, that's really what the cable news cycle is all about. They make their money by convincing you that everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. Which is, again, it's having immense effects, right? Number one cause of death amongst young men right now in America is suicide because we've begun to believe everything's bad. And in doing so, it's, it's almost like we do a really good job of, of kind of intuitively understanding Genesis chapter 3 or Romans chapter 1. We understand kind of intuitively so many of those chapters that talk about the brokenness of the world. We understand the curse. Some of you in the room, medically, you understand it better than most of us, where you wake up and every day for you is a new uh, and more horrible experience of God's curse. Where you're like, God, did you really have to do such a good job here? I mean, the curse, did you, did you have to go all out? Could you could tone it down just a little bit more? But where we feel kind of the, the bad news being constantly and pervasively kind of impressing upon us. And then when we do end up actually having some forms of difficulty or Christians as a whole, I think what I saw this week, one of the states out west made it so that uh, elementary school students and middle school students are forbidden from reading the Bible in school. It's like now illegal to read the Bible in school in middle school and elementary school because it's too violent of a book, uh, which I thought was intriguing. Um, I mean, okay. I mean, it's not, it is a violent book. They're not wrong. Maybe not the right response, but okay. But it's important though, uh, that as we live in a, a time in which basically our entertainment is largely sold through the lens of fear and panic and negativity and hate. It is important that we actually look at what the Bible actually says. And it's important that we look at what the Bible actually says about enemies for real, not for foe or for whatever the, again, news cycle says but what the Bible says for real. And it's intriguing that I think there's a a real regular theme of this in the book of Isaiah, where he's begun the book, you know, and he starts kind of with his uh, opening bit, which is his kind of summary statement. He gives a thesis statement, an overview of the book, first five chapters or so, and then he meets God where he sees the glory of the Lord, and it remakes the man. 
Until God asks this kind of rhetorical question, who's gonna go minister for me, the triune God? And Isaiah's like, well, I'll do it. And he gets the worst (laughs) pastoral job description in the history of the church. You're gonna go labor for a long time and all you're ever gonna do is just watch people turn from me and be, you know, reject me and therefore increase their judgment. And so he starts in on a ministry and a message that's grim, that the Lord will judge the world. The Lord will judge the world and these first kind of two cycles that we've been through, they're oracles against the nations and he's gone through all of the kind of geographic enemies of Israel all around them, one kind of working one way, another working another way and laying out that the Lord's gonna destroy all of his enemies. He's, He's going to destroy sinners and unfortunately for Israel in many ways, they've been included in that list because they're not walking with God. They're not honoring the Lord. They're not seeking him and they're not obeying him. But this kind of golden little thread that's been woven through all of these chapters, through all of these passages, is the idea that there is a real group of people. There is a real group of people that belong to the Lord, and they're not connected to any of the nations in in the area. And interestingly, they're not even really ultimately connected to Israel. And they've been called various things, but largely referred to with the idea of the remnant that even after kind of the destruction of everything, there's a leftover, there's a left behind, those that remain and stay and make it, the remnant. Well, in chapters 24 through 27 of the book, we get to really the hard part. Now we're in the third cycle of what's going on here, and now we've moved away from dealing with simple nations around. We're not talking about the Ammonites or the Hittites or the any other ites. Now we're talking about kind of the globe cosmically. We're talking about the created order. We're talking about all men and women, boys and girls. We're actually talking here about horses and cows and bugs and birds. We're talking about the oceans and the mountains. We're talking about everything that exists inside the created order. And chapter 24 was the grim news. If you turn back a chapter and looked at it, and I mean, the ESV helpfully kind of labels headings to help your, your brain kind of catch it. <laughs> what do they have it labeled as? Judgment on the whole earth. The whole earth is going to be destroyed. It's awful. And it's interesting that in many ways, this is uh, kind of the, the correct version of what the American entertainment industry and what the internet kind of hawks, uh, sells uh, a cheaper version of. Right, uh, So much of the American entertainment industry sells this idea that everything's bad, everything's bad, everything's bad, everything's bad. And really, here's the truth is, there are good things all around, but it will all ultimately come under the judgment of God. Everything that you see and know will at some point come under the judgment of God. And you can't get away from that. He's cursed the created order, and the created order itself will come under the judgment of God. And that's scary, and that's the bad news. But 25 changes immensely. Where now we move out of the bad news, we move out of internet land, we move out of all of the the grim and dark and gritty bit of it, and we move into the glorious hope that the remnant has 
Now, I will say this is an important truth for us to understand, but we do need to kind of identify. Chapter 25 is not about the United States of America. It is not about Israel as a nation. It is not about the Jews as a people group. This cannot be connected to any one geopolitical group of people. We're going to get to see why in just a minute. It starts, and and providentially, it identifies in the very first words who this chapter belongs to. O Lord, you are my God. This chapter, this chapter is all good news, and it is the best of news. And who does it belong to? It belongs to those that know the living and true God. Now, the language here in this, O Lord, you get to see your English very helpfully. Your Bible should have this in all capitals, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if I got that backwards correctly for you. That's the covenant name of God when it's typed that way. This is the God who has pledged himself to his people and his people have been united with him. This is that kind of fatherly relationship. This is not using the name God generically, right? This is not the moment where, you know, an athlete scores a touchdown and then, you know, kind of, eh, praise God. And, and you're like, okay, are you, are you Hindu? Are you Muslim? Are you Christian? Are you Buddhist? I have no idea which God you're talking about. This is the name of the triune God. This is the God of the Bible, specifically the one who has promised himself to his people. So who is this? This chapter is for the people who know the Lord. Don't don't, it's not the chapter for people who know about the Lord. Those that have, have heard of him, who know of him secondhand, this chapter is, is for those that know him, that share in a relationship with him, that are known by him, that know the Lord in Christ Jesus. Again, kind of starting point. Right? We're not very far into the sermon, but it's going to be all good news from here. And friends, I'd encourage you, you don't know you're in that category yet, please talk to your elders, talk to your pastors. Let's get that remedied. All you have to do is ask and the Lord will receive you in Christ. All right, so we start off. This is the good news. This chapter is the good news and it's for the people of God. But what does the good news look like? Well, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, you're my God. Okay, great, I like this. I will exalt you, I will praise your name. Okay, I'm going to praise you, that's good, I like this. Why would I want to praise this God, though? Now, reminding this is the chapter that's dealing with the end of time, it's not just dealing with the immediate, and we're going to get to that at the bend, but think about the end specifically here. For you have done wonderful things, Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So this God uh, that knows his people and loves his people has actually laid out a plan for his people, a plan that is, and there's a, a Hebrew joke here with the faithful and sure, it's like faithfully faithfulest. Doesn't work in English, it sounds really dumb even trying to get it right, but the idea being he is the most faithfulest of all of the faithfulest that you could imagine, and his plans are a reflection of his category, I mean of his character. So that uh, this is the one who has done wonderful things because he intended to do that and he's executed his plan perfectly. 
He's done exactly what he wanted to do, and he's done it with no frustration. He's done it with no limitation. He's done it with no kind of anybody in the way. He's done exactly what he wanted to do. I was in high school. Uh, One of my mentors uh, used to play for the uh, men's national team soccer. He's a kind of international soccer. He used to play at uh, Clemson and very, very good player. Uh, and I got a little bit too big for my britches in one game where I was playing against him. I was in high school, and I was very dreadful, but uh, for whatever reason that day, thought I was not very dreadful, and uh, got a little bit too cocky, and so he kind of informed me. He said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go back on defense, and I'm going to come and get the ball, and I'm going to dribble it to you, and I'm going to put it between your legs, and then when you turn around, I'm going to put it back between your legs, and when you turn around, I'm going to put it back between your legs, and I'm going to take it down and score. Okay, let's see this. So, of course, I go to start playing defense with my legs put together. Right? You can't do that. So he went down on defense, got the ball, dribbled it up, put it between my legs, which were together, put it back between my legs, which were together, put it back between my legs, which were together, and then went down and put it in the very top corner of the goal and walked away. I'm like, okay. I'll stop running my mouth now. Right? I knew, I thought I could play ball. I thought I could play soccer. I I had never seen anything like that before. It was intriguing. He told me exactly what he was going to do. And then he did exactly what he said he was going to do while I tried to stop it. And you know how much I inconvenienced him? Not at all. Not one bit. The fact that I tried to keep my ankles touching the entire time, did it bother him a bit? Nope. Did it slow him down a bit? Nope. Did I get in his way a bit? Nope, not at all. He still did everything he wanted to do and scored the goal and walked away. Couldn't slow it down to save it if I wanted to. It's so intriguing that, again, important to think of God's plans the same way, except here not intentionally to kind of get us too big for our britches, but instead to work out goodness and grace and kindness and love. And specifically, what happens? What is it? You've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. These are words that for us just don't really ring that emotionally charged. But for the Jew reading this, this would have been huge. What's being promised here is the Lord has made a plan from of old that is faithfully faithful, and the plan that he has made is to destroy all all of the enemies around Israel. I mean, you think about it, geographically, Jerusalem is in a wonderful part of the world, kind of geographically, and the climate, I think, at this point was probably a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter than it is now, but it's a lovely place to be geographically, except for what? They're surrounded by enemies, I mean, think about it. If all of Israel's history, there's only very brief periods where you didn't have an enemy here, 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 and then an enemy down there. It's just a list of who's who in that point of history of the greatest superpowers in the world and little tiny Israel kind of situated up against water on one side and bad guys everywhere else. They're constantly in danger of being wiped off the map. You realize, I mean, we have people here that kind of complain about American defense spending. Like, you complain about our spending on our military and our defense, go look at how Israel's budget is currently structured, right? They only maintain the highest level of military. They only maintain the highest kind of equipment. Why? Because they are constantly about 12 minutes away from disappearing as a nation, 
because look at what they're surrounded by. And so they maintain the highest level of military they can. They're, they're in danger constantly. And interestingly, what's God's promise here? What, what is uh, Isaiah promising? Hey, what are we gonna see our God do? What is his faithfully faithful plan at the end of time? Is that every enemy, the, the fortified cities are gonna be destroyed and knocked down and turned into rubble. The fortified cities are gonna be made into ruins so that they won't be able to be strong anymore. The foreigner's palace, this is not a, uh, a speech against uh, immigration or foreigners of that sort. What it meant here is the Gentile, uh, the non-Christian, the non-Christian's palace. So even their places of strength and might and grandeur and greatness, even they, are, are, they're no more. They've just, they've just been wiped off the map. And in fact, they've been wiped off the map so thoroughly, they're never going to be rebuilt. They are gone So an opening kind of salvo for what the end of time looks like is, hey, you're my God, and because I belong to you, you're going to wipe all of your enemies off the map and in kind of in conjunction, mine as well. Mine as well. So that, in fact, actually, one of the very formative ideas in Christianity is completely antithetical to the entire American experience right now. The American experience right now is largely motivated by fear. And I would say, and and I'm I'm, going to maybe tip my hand here and probably offend a couple of you, I'm sure, conservatives are the worst about this. Political conservatives and cultural conservatives are 100% the worst about this. Because rather than us being excited about our good ideas, the way that our news companies make their money is getting us afraid of the liberals' bad ideas. Rather than us getting excited about a presidential candidate who brings something to the table, they're gonna get us worried about the presidential candidate on the other side who's going to be bad at the table. Conservatives are absolutely, 100%, the absolute worst about this. We market ourselves based on fear. And the interesting thing is that is not in step with how the Bible operates. Because it's interesting, the formative idea is if you belong to God, you win. And there's, no, there's no footnote. There's no little asterisk that you have to turn down to the bottom of the page and say, well, okay, maybe only some, but occasionally, but no. Like, no, we win. And in fact, actually, we win over all of our enemies, and we win over all, all our enemies so comprehensively, they're wiped off the map in such a way that they will never, ever, ever be rebuilt. Do you see how maybe that would change your frame of mind a little bit in approaching the world around us? In a time in which constantly it's being marketed that we lose everything, conservatives lose everything. In fact, actually, our young men are 100% under assault intellectually right now to the point where their life expectancy is shortening because of suicide. And how different would it be if we trained our boys to understand, look, if you are in Christ, you win. And it's not up for negotiation. They may bother you now, but it will only be for a time. You win because our God wins. And we get to ride his coattails. He defeats all of our enemies. We win. You realize, I think this is an application here, is 
probably one of the primary reasons why so many Christians in America specifically are so impatient. Patience is really hard to do if you don't think you're winning. I mean, think about it. If you know you're going to lose, are you going to be patient? No, you have to panic. If you know you're going to lose, you have to panic because you've you got to panic in order to kind of generate the energy and the effort and the exertion to get up and win and to try to make things. You, panic, panic. If we know victory is sure, it lets us be a people of patience. It's going to give us patience with the political insanity of the next 18 months. I don't know what they're going to hold. Neither do you, thankfully. We'd all go crazy if we did. I guarantee you, it's going to be wild. Right? The next 18 months in our nation, are going to, it's going to be wild. I think this is going to be a dreadful presidential election. And if I'm going to be constantly motivated by fear, what am I going to do? I'm going to panic. I'm going to have anxiety. I'm going to be stressed out of my head. I'm going to want to check out. I'm not going to know what to do. Instead, if I know, look, I'm in Christ. And my victory is sure. And all of my enemies, maybe not political enemies, whatever, all the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. Look, my job here is to be faithful and to wait it out. I don't have to worry about screaming at the other side. I don't have to worry about being some shrill, awful, wretched kind of citizen. Look, I know God wins, and so will I. I can be patient. I can be at peace. I can have some rest. Well, it doesn't stop there. I mean, that'd be pretty good, just those two verses. I mean, yay, I like that. But not just God kind of accomplishing victory over our enemies, but now it it switches to how he actually interacts with people like you and me. How does he treat people that are are broken? How does he treat people who cry? How does he treat people whose lives are a mess? How does he treat people whose hearts hurt or bodies hurt or struggle with loneliness, right? I mean, nobody talks about it in the suburbs, but what a plight we have with loneliness, Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Why? Why will we kind of respect this God? Because you have been a stronghold to the poor. You've been a stronghold to the needy in his distress. You've been a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. You've been the one who've come in and you love God. You love to take care of people who are a mess. You love to take care of people who are a mess. I I think this is just the most wonderful thing. We get to see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? He begins his ministry And who does Jesus seek out the entirety of his ministry? Does he go find the most polished, you know, people? Does he go hang out in the palaces and get, you know, connected with all the, you know, social media stars of the day? Yes, they did have social media. It was dreadful. It was basically their own version of Judge Judy. It was awful. Uh, Did he go, did he go do that? No, in fact, we actually know what, what happened, what did, particularly early on in his ministry, what did it look like? He just got invited to parties constantly by people who were a mess. And he got invited to the kind of parties that if you found out I went to them, you would worry about me. 
And if you found out I was going to them like every week, ooh, there'd be some gossip on that one, wouldn't there? How long would it take before the elders had to sit me down and be like, okay, what's going on? Like, I mean, we see the crowd you hang out with. I mean, every Friday night, right? You're not in the party. It's filled with prostitutes. What kind of parties do you go to, man? I think it's intriguing. The Lord, he loves his people so much. He's intentionally going after those that are broken, those that are dysfunctional, those that struggle with sin, those that struggle with loneliness, those whose mental health isn't necessarily great, those that are, we'll use kind of common parlance, they're a hot mess. And what has he become to them? A helper. And I like how you get to see the recurring theme, he's the stronghold. It's like I have the mental image in my head. It's not the text name. The mental image in my head of you have like the little Christian kind of motoring along about their business, just being an absolute mess. And it's like somebody takes a gigantic kind of you know fortress and just around them, so they're surrounded by this fortress. They just keep motoring along, and the fortress kind of goes with them. It's what God's doing is He's just coming around and protecting His people, safeguarding them. I love this. How tender is our God? How kind is our God? Not only is he going to take care of all of our enemies, I mean, that would be a good enough deal in its own right, but then to look back and hear Isaiah even saying that, look, throughout time you have been the God who has come alongside, who's come alongside his people and protected them and encouraged them and been safety for them and strength for them. How gentle our God How kind our God, how he protects even the weak. Now this should, in theory, friends, teach us to pray. And just as this idea that he defeats our enemies should give us a sense of patience, this reality that the Lord is the stronghold to the poor, that he's the stronghold to the needy and distressed, it should teach us to pray. Because interestingly, most of us, when we pray, now again, this maybe isn't the best motivation always, but most of us, when we pray, it's usually a need-based prayer. We hate to admit that, but it's true. Very rarely do we spend enough time coming to the Lord just saying, I'm going to spend an hour thanking you. Most of the time, we come to the Lord when we're about 30 seconds away from something really bad, and we're like, ah, I need help. Please help. And I love that it's so intriguing. And the Lord's saying, is that okay thing? He loves to help the needy, namely his people. He loves it when we come to him and ask for help. He loves it when we come to him and be like, I can't do this. I need you to help me do this. And in fact, actually, I would say there's a, a bit of a a break in the analogy that we normally have with parenting here. Right, as human parents, we know when we have those children that are about this long at first, we have to do everything for them, everything. And then about this long, you still have to do just about everything to them. And then about that long, they start moving and getting very busy. And then the parents get very, very tired. And after they're about that big and running around and parents are very, very tired, then it becomes simply a game as to how quickly you can get them to figure things out so they don't have to ask quite so many questions because you're exhausted. 
Can you go to the bathroom by yourself? Yes, please. (laughs) Can you clip yourself in your car seat? Ah, Right? Those two are just game changers. When the kids can go to the bathroom by themselves and when they can clip themselves in their car seat, man, it is a good day. It's a good day. So much of human parenting is, is kind of pushing our children into freedom. It's in responsible and loving and careful and tender ways, it's actually equipping them to leave us. It's interesting that God's relationship with his children, his parenting towards us, is not to get us out in freedom, it's to get us closer in dependence. Right? The more mature the children get in relationship with the Father, the closer they are and the more reliant they are. Right? The more they live at home, the more they mooch off of dad's income, the, the more they're there. Kind of the opposite of what we're working for as humans. It should teach us to pray because our God loves us and he wants to take care of us. All right, very quickly, uh, from six and seven, uh, I love this, that it, it now begins to explain really what God's big picture plan is. On this mountain, all right, so here Mount Zion again, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Now, this was, again, that, ca- that categorical description I started with. This is not for the United States. This is not for Israel. This is not for the Jews. This is for the people who know you are my God. Those that know Elohim, the Lord of uh, the covenant-keeping Lord. These are going to be all peoples, which, praise God, I know we've got some Jewish folks in here of lineage, but most of us aren't. Most of us are in that category of the all peoples and praise the Lord that he is this way for us because I get to be a part of this. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I'm not of Jewish heritage. I wouldn't have known. But on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Now, this is fun to think about. Our infinitely creative God. Now, how creative is our God? It's magnificent. All of us should periodically go watch like the, you know, the science network or go read like kind of the kids' magazines for science stuff. It's fantastic. The weird animals that God has made, the things that he's created, and you're like, I did not know that was an animal. I, didn't, I did not know things like that looked real. That they, I mean, that they are existent. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, kids and I were looking at a snake just a couple of weeks ago that it looks like it has googly eyes stuck on it. And you're like, surely that's not a real creature. And it is. God made it. Some weird boa from the Middle East or something. It's bizarre. This infinitely creative God, and what is he going to do? The Lord of hosts is going to make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Now, this, um, for some of us in here, we're going to get excited about this because we enjoy food. But for a lot of us, I think this probably doesn't quite hit the same way it would for them back then because largely we don't deal with hunger the same way and we eat the best food in human history, right? Right? GMOs included in everything. I get it. Like, it does not matter. We eat the best in human history. You eat better on a daily basis than David and Solomon did, right? There's a reason why our nation continues to get taller and boys get bigger and girls are getting taller and everybody's because we're actually eating enough food for the first time in human history. Nobody's starving to death. But interestingly, in a world in which hunger was a very real thing, and starvation was a very real thing, here you have a feast, but not just a feast, and the idea that's going to kind of crop up here repeatedly is rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Now, historically, in a culture with no refrigeration, the second you harvest grapes and make juice, you start making wine. 
because there's no refrigeration, so it starts fermenting immediately. But what's being highlighted here is not just grape juice that's begun to ferment. What we're talking about here is grape juice that has been well made into very good wine. This is the kind of wine that is delicious and delightful. It's the best. So for all peoples on the Mount of Zion, God is making a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, uh, food that's rich, full of marrow, means it's delicious, it's got all of the the, the seasoning and the flavoring and the the nutrients of aged wine, well-refined. He's preparing blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and it's being given to all peoples. Obviously, this is in some ways foreshadowing what we're going to do this evening. We're people from all over, Jews and not Jews. Those that know the Lord are going to sit down at that table right there, and we're going to share this feast with God on high. And we're going to sit in this room. I'll sit out in the chairs there, and Brandon will serve. And we'll physically eat a little bit of bread and drink a little bit of wine, but spiritually we'll participate in this feast in glory. Again, foreshadowing the final version of this, the marriage feast of the Lamb, where Christ feeds all of his people. And it's all of his people, and it's, it's so generous. Ah, time. There's never enough time. This victory will be so great that on this mountain, uh, the eyes will be open so that people can enjoy the fullness of who this God is. Lastly, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll go through it. Uh, application on that one is go evangelize. Like it's for all peoples. And it's for all peoples that are a mess, which is why it's good hope for us, but it's why it should be good hope for everyone out there as well. Because everybody in this community is a mess. They were a mess big time mess. Go tell people about the Lord. Invite them to the good news. It's given freely to them. All right, lastly, verse 8 and 9. I love this. How comprehensive is this victory? How comprehensive is this blessing? He will swallow up death forever. And death itself will die. Death itself will be defeated. And the Lord God uh, will wipe away tears from all faces. I love this. Death dies, then sadness dies, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. So any sort of kind of guilt, shame, or uh, kind of reprehensibility, I mean, that, that dies for the Lord has spoken. And that for the Lord has spoken is kind of the uh, Yule Brenner, you know, uh, so let it be written, so let it be done. It, it, this is declarative. It's going to happen. This is God's promise. It will be this way. And what a great verse. I mean, how would you like that? I mean, if a salesman came selling this and you knew you could buy it, man, that'd be pretty great, wouldn't it? You could be defeat death you could defeat sadness, and you could defeat any form of guilt or shame or, you know, kind of feeling bad afterwards. Man, I'm all in on that. And yet, interestingly, that's the victory that's being described. The Lord is so comprehensive in his victory. And that, in theory, should make us to be a people of undying, comprehensive hope. This is where I think maybe, perhaps, parts of the Uh, PCA, Evangelical Reformed Confessional Churches, have maybe made a mistake 
by not being quite discretionary enough in how we consume our conservative news. Realistically, currently, the American model is to market everything via fear. Our educational system is built on fear. Our entertainment system is built on fear. Our political system is built on fear. And interestingly, that is in complete contradiction to hope. And the intriguing thing is that's really the final biblical application, is hope. We are to be a people of hope. The Lord has spoken, and he has spoken. And what he has said, that if I belong to Jesus, I, Michael, will defeat death. Now, sure, this body will be dead for a while. I don't know how long, but it ain't gonna stay that way. And the soul that's inside will never die. And in fact, when it's reunited with the body, the body will be made to live forever so that it won't even know what death is. It can't die anymore. I will personally defeat death. I will beat it. It may get me for a time, right? It may get me for a year or two, a thousand years or two, a hundred thousand years or two. I don't know. I'm going to win. Not because I'm special, but because my God is special. And in fact, actually, all of the sadness that we live with today and all of the tears that we cry today and all of the weariness and the hurt and the heartache, I'm going to beat that too. So I'll have to deal with it here. And I might have to deal with it for, what, 30, 40, 50 years more, maybe 60. I'm going to beat that too. My tears, I'm going to beat them. Not because I'm not going to cry them. Not because I'm not going to be sad. But because my God is going to win over them. And I will too. And any sort of shame or guilt or dishonor, I'm going to beat that too. Not because I'm special, but because my God is. And I love that, in fact, actually, he then specifically applies that by immediately going and referencing Moab. Moab would have been one of those points of kind of, with Israel. And says, look, you think, you think, you think you're not going to put this into practice. And yet, no, look, here, Moab, it is true even with Moab. God is victorious. Now, some of you, realistically, um, you don't have hope because you don't ever think about what God is doing. I would lovingly rebuke you and say, you need to think more about what God is doing. And you need to think more about the end of time specifically. Others of you, and I I might, again, be a little bit more pointed here as I kind of end with this point for you. Some of you don't have hope because you're clinging to that private shame. You're clinging to that private guilt. You're clinging to that whatever it is, and you refuse to let it go. And honestly, that's just pride, friends. You're clinging to your misery instead of going to the Lord. And it's time to repent and to go to the Lord. Why? Well, because this is chapters ultimately fulfilled in two phases, really. It's fulfilled in the Gospels when Jesus shows up where he accomplishes these things in part. He defeats our enemies, defeats death, defeats sadness, defeats sorrow, defeats, defeats all of them, but not yet in its entirety, not even fully, not in, in, in the kind of con- consummated way that we're going to see. And so we in the in-between time need to be those people that can look back at what he's done and look forward to where we're going so that we may stand out as a bright and shining light in our culture 
And I know that many of us are saying, hey, you know what? Uh, the church needs to be this kind of bright and shining light. The way we have to be a bright and shining light is, a, is our ethical norms. We, we have to, to be those that lead the, the, the charge against homosexuality, and we need to be those that lead the charge against abortion. We need to be those that, yeah, and I agree with all those things. Please, let's be those people. But you really want to see us be a bright and shining light in the world and totally change the world? How about we just be a people of hope? in a nation that has none, none. You want to be different. Be a person of hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that while we have hard passages and bad ones, we have happy ones too. And we thank you that we have Christ, and if we have Christ, our victory is sure. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.